Hi, my name is Warner Lewis. Thank you for joining me for Creating Home, a weekly podcast exploring what different successful individuals have done to allow them to find their physical, emotional, and spiritual home. We'll discuss their individual journeys, including disadvantages, roadblocks, adversity, and dead ends, as well as their strategies, successes, and support, which allowed them to overcome obstacles and thrive. When I first thought of creating a real estate-focused podcast, it quickly expanded beyond chatting with past clients and friends about their real estate. While real estate provides my financial livelihood as a New York City real estate broker helping clients purchase and sell their homes for the past 15 years, my passion for it derives from expanding my life through the close relationships that are created during the process of finding a home. Indeed, a home to me is so much more than the physical walls in which we live, but it is also the actions we take to ground ourselves and find peace and acceptance, as well as the people with whom we surround ourselves and who give support and guidance. As we find ourselves spending more time at home these days, I have reflected on my own journey that started with the choice to go into this industry 16 years ago. At that time, I was basically unemployable, alone, deeply depressed, and truly felt that real estate was the last option I had and had avoided because if this didn't work, I felt I was out of options. The act of going into real estate and metaphorically burning the boats behind me and being all in on changing my life has led me to the place where I am today. I have an incredible business partner, Ari Harkov, and we have had one of the top 200 real estate sales teams in the nation for the past five years. I have a loving and deeply accommodating wife and two wonderful and exhausting kids and more true friendships than I ever dared hope for when I was a socially awkward and terrified kid. The hope is that in hearing what these intrepid individuals have gone through to get where they are today will be inspiring to others on their journey to find home and a sense of physical safety, emotional peace, and individual success in this sometimes raging storm of life. If that happens, then the goal of this podcast will have been met. Welcome to today's episode of Creating Home. Today, I have someone I am so excited to have on the show today. Uh, it's Sean Feeney, who is someone I met actually through my son, and I'm indebtedly uh, a huge debt of gratitude to him for going to uh, school with Sean's daughter, Biella. And their family has been a big, become a big part of our family. And Sean has been someone who has absolutely blown me away with his success as a father, as a business owner, and as a human being, and someone who, in the midst of the storm that we're dealing with right now, is doing more things for others than I could imagine, even though he is, must be feeling stress that is at a new level in life. So, Sean, thank you so much for joining today, and I can't wait to sort of go through what your steps in life and, and um, you know, just sort of discuss how you're dealing with an incredibly stressful experience and being right in the eye of the storm. Good morning. I appreciate that intro. I might need you to write that on my uh, bio on the website because that, uh, that was better than anybody else has ever done, but it was, it was also very nice. So thank you very much. Well, it, it, it has been, it's truly been an absolute honor and a pleasure to, to get to know you and to become friends with you from that first moment at Blue Bottle when I was coming out to take Brooks to baseball at 7 a.m. And all I heard, are you Brooks's dad? Which is probably the <laughs> nicest way to be known. 
And I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, this is my daughter Biella. They're in class together and they love to hang out. And Brooks was in the car. I think you guys came over, said hi, and then that was it. Didn't think about it. And then got an email from Maria. And we'll definitely talk about our wives because boy, are we lucky uh, a little bit later. Oh, yes. But um, then got an email from Maria and she was, she said, why don't Friday night, why don't we uh, get the kids together for dinner? And our thought was best pizza, like very nice and easy. And she said, well, you can come to a restaurant at 10th and Union. And my jaw almost dropped because we had been, I grew up in Manhattan. I pride myself on having every access to everything. Like I won't go anywhere I can't get in or have to wait online. And Lilia was the code that could not be broken. And so I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, this is, this is it. Like this is, this is huge. Having kids does pay off. And then I immediately told Brooks, don't you F this up for daddy. You treat her right because this is a really important connection. And then uh, so I, I forced my way into taking Brooks to that, got him in a blazer. We went to dinner with, and Maria brought B. And it might be the greatest date of Brooks's life. So it's just nothing but downhill for, I think he was six at the time, five or six. Yeah. So it's just his dating life is just going to get worse because that was the best first introduction into seeing you in action and seeing your family in action. And I mean, it was just, you know, a New York City dream with having Missy come over, play with fidget spinners with the kids, uh, joke with Brooks that there were that there are other boys that Biella liked and Brooks not getting it said, oh, she loves Oscar and Lino. And I was just dying <laughs> laughing because of, you know, boys are a little bit slower on the uptake sometimes about things than girls. And and then you came in. And grabbed the kids, took them to make gelato, and it was just like, oh wow! All of a sudden, we've joined this inner circle, and so that was my introduction to you and to your family. and And I feel very fortunate that we've been able to spend a lot of time together. And actually, even just this past weekend, be sleeping over. Granted, no one actually slept till about midnight, and Christina's still a little <laughs> bit angry at me for forcing this to happen because I thought everyone would have so much fun, but. Um, but yeah, it's just been, it's been, I've been in awe many a time watching you and your actions that you've taken. And so, you know, I, I'd love to, to, to learn a little bit about the young Sean Feeney that, you know, your family growing up that allowed you to, and for those who don't know, so they don't have to wait to the end, you started your career at Goldman. You went from Goldman to Anchorage Capital, um, and then you opened Lilia. And the story of Lilia opening is amazing and awesome. I'd love you to tell that. And then from Lilia to Missy to Red Hook Tavern, you were at the absolute pinnacle apex. You were the name that everyone was speaking about in New York City and restaurant along with Missy. And then all of a sudden, everything crumpled. And the first thing I saw you do was start worrying about everyone around you. And that, to me, is the crux of of what is missing in a lot of America. And, you know, the, I, I didn't think I could be more impressed by you, but I have become more impressed. So anyway, sorry, I've been talking a lot. Man, I, pre I appreciate you saying all that stuff. I'd like to take a step back and let you talk. I would say I've, I definitely vividly remember the first time we met at Blue Bottle because Biella had been talking about this boy, Brooks. And I, it was probably the spring of 17, 
And yeah. uh, she was talking about this boy, uh, Brooks, in her class. And then all of a sudden, online at Blue Bottle, she started tugging on my arm saying, yeah, Brooks' is dad, Brooks' is dad. And I'm like, huh? I didn't know what was going on. And then it hit me. I'm like, oh, Brooks from her class. So that's when we came outside and said hi. And I do remember that dinner really well. You guys are sitting at table 23 and B, I believe, I mean, I have, I have picture evidence that it was her first kiss and we'll always have (laughs) that. And I was, I was giving him so much crap for, for, for that, that happening under my roof. But, um, (laughs) but that was a, that was definitely a magical night. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I've, I'm just been so, so thankful for our friendship and um, getting to know each other's families. And it's just been that type of thing in Williamsburg where we've been able to uh, through the restaurants and just through really loving meeting people, getting to know this great community here and um, excited to see where it goes from here. But I, I grew up in Jersey and when I was in third grade, my mom and dad realized that, I was pretty good at sports and um, I grew up in a town that was essentially a hundred percent white and uh, they did something that was pretty amazing at that time was that they pulled me out of uh, sports teams in that town, uh, Wall Township, and essentially put me on a basketball team out of uh, Jersey City with um, with all um, black kids. And then I joined a soccer team that was all Latinos in, in, uh, Rahway, New Jersey. And from the time of third grade until, um, college, really, I played on those teams and I, I, uh, I kind of wasn't the fastest or the, the most skilled, uh, players on those teams anymore. Um, and I had to kind of figure it out how to, how to help teams win. And it was one of these natural things to me where, you know, I didn't even speak the language um, people were speaking on my soccer team. And I just had to figure out how to how to fit in as a teammate and um, feel like I was adding value. And the way I was able to do that was just to be a really good teammate. And I loved being that. Um, from that moment on, I kind of knew that that was something I was always going to be able to, to lead uh, with in whatever I was doing is just to, how to fit in. And I always liked being a part of a team and a family. And that could also be because of my family growing up. Every Sunday, we would have down the Jersey Shore, all of my mom and dad's families from North Jersey. And we would have these great cookouts every Sunday. And there was just always people around. And I I loved it. I never wanted to be anywhere else other than around people. And I always carried that throughout my life. And when I went to college, uh, I played college soccer. And um, I, again, I played on a team that was uh, made up of so many amazing players. And I wasn't even close to uh, that level of, of talent. And I essentially didn't play that much my first year and a half, my freshman and midway through my sophomore year. I didn't play that much at UVA, but I just, I kept on getting better and I finally like hit puberty, you know, at the end of my first year of college, finally. And I <laughs> w- like started lifting weights and just like grew into a, a body and just got a, got better. And I, I finally started playing a lot. And um, by the end of the time I was there, I was the captain. And it wasn't because of my talent. It was just because they wanted me to be the captain. And um, 
I joined Goldman and I didn't know what I was getting myself into in terms of finance. And I definitely wasn't the smartest. I was put on a desk as a trader and I worked really hard at it. And at times I really felt great about it. And at times I, I didn't. Um, and I always just kept my head down and I always relied on the ability of, of forming relationships and networking. And I went out to dinner almost every night with clients of the firm and knowing that that was going to give me my edge going to work the next morning, being able to pick up a phone and just say, you know, I had a great time last night and people being able to trust me and give me business. Uh, and, and the person next to me most likely wasn't in, interested in going out to dinner, but they were way smarter and way better at taking risk and way more passionate. Uh, about that, but I was really passionate about just like making friends all the time and being around people. And uh, all of those nights that I was going out to dinner, I, I just became friends with everybody at the restaurants that I would go to. And that led to us moving into this apartment building in 2008. Uh, Marie and I got married and it was in the West Village, this apartment. And shortly after we had moved in, there was this... Uh, female chef from Chicago who's moving back to New York to take over a restaurant called Avoce. And I had read all about her and it just so happened she was going to be my neighbor now. And I was so excited about that. And I, you know, I really said, I'm going to just want to become her friend somehow. And for the first five years, we all lived in this apartment. We really didn't hang out that much because I was always working and at, she was always working at the restaurants. And then the night that Hurricane Sandy hit New York, um, I came home from work and she was in the hallway and I invited her up to our apartment that night for dinner because she had shut down her restaurants because of the storm. And um, I, I cooked. Uh, she approved. I even cooked her pasta. And um, we stayed up all night that night and just kind of like talking about our life stories and really became friends, like legitimate friends that night. She told us she was going to be leaving the restaurant industry in 2013 which was a big thing because she had been working in it for 20 years since she graduated Georgetown. And she worked her way up to like really a big level. And she had two Michelin stars. There's only 10 given to female chefs. And she was at a point in her life where she just wanted to invest a little bit more time into herself because she had given that up so much. And so in 2013, I would come home every night from work and, you know, I was really digging in on this relationship and I was excited about it. I was I felt like I was really, um, you know, a part of that ride and journey. And I was inspired by it because she was taking some time to really figure out herself. And I was, uh, I was next to her and, and I was inspired. And, uh, at the end of 2013, she was nervous about going back to work and she had really done a lot of work on herself to where she wanted to be an owner of her own restaurant. And maybe it was nerves, anxiousness, but I just said, to her to make her feel a little bit easier on herself that Marie and I would support her in any way, shape or form because we believed in her. And I felt like at that time, I just meant that we were going to go to her restaurant every night to support her. And then a few weeks later, uh, it turned into, you know, her coming home uh, with an offer from somebody and she was really excited by it. Uh, well, not excited, but like, you know, excited to potentially get back to the kitchen. And I had felt that she was, you know, kind of like um, discounting herself because it wasn't real ownership. And um, I challenged her a little bit on it. And she knew, talking to some of her other friends, that she could probably get a better deal too. And 
a couple of weeks later and neg- helping negotiate terms with other restaurant people, I just looked at my wife and I was like, Maria, we should be doing this with Missy. And um, fast forward four months later, after Missy continuously said no to me for being my partner, she said yes. And then 14, you know, uh, actually about a year and a half later, we opened Lily in North Amesburg. And um, I, you know, never thought I was going to enter the hospitality business to own a restaurant. I was just going to help her open her own. And um, as soon as we said yes to being each other's partners, I immediately realized that my responsibilities were going to increase um, to the point where when we did finally open in January 2016, I was coming every single night in that first month because I had people coming to the restaurant that I knew. I was proud of it. We had just gone through you know, a lot of challenging times to get it open, and but I loved it. And something hit me while that was going on that like I've never felt this in my life before, this feeling of, of creating something also like this confidence. And um, I was still going to work every morning to Anchorage and I would come to the restaurant at night and Missy and I would head back home to the West Village after service at like 1.30 a.m. And I would go my office at 5.30 every morning. And um, one night, after the first month, she just said, like, you know, are, you, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm great. I feel good. She goes, all right, well, you got to keep coming to this restaurant every night. I said, I'm going to. And then I woke up Maria and I you know, I knew my one promise to her when I said I was going to do this with Missy was that I wasn't going to be at the restaurant every night. And I already broke it a month in. So I woke up Maria at 2 a.m. and I said, uh, yeah, I, I apologize. And I, I started fumbling through words and she just stopped me and said, don't worry about it. We're going to move to Williamsburg and we'll make it work. And for the next three years, essentially, I just did it. I put my head down and lived work by Lilia and went to work every morning at the hedge fund and then came back to work the, the floor every night. And it just kind of really came back to this thing of, of being around people. And I, I had always known that that was what I was really good at. And it was naturally, it was something when I got out of bed every morning, I knew I was going to be good at. Is, is how, you know, being around people, forming relationships, and just trying to make people's days better. It put them in a position to win. And, you know, I finally hit it where I, I was now doing the job that was the best for that skill. And up until then in finance, I fought like hell to, to be really great. And, um, you know, I think there were probably other jobs in finance that I could have been extraordinary at if I had used that skill um, to, it, to its best. But, um, but finally, in the restaurant, I just, it was a natural feeling every single night we're in the restaurant. And that kind of led us to where we are now. Um, it's I just always believe people in that I was lucky to finally find a job that it's not a job. And I don't ever want to stop doing it. It's uh, and and I know how hard that is to find in life. And you know, luckily, I was able to do it at 34 years old, and and now I I could hopefully do it for a long time. So it, there's so much to unpack there, and and there's so much because you are insanely humble that you lost over. I mean, one thing I just want to point out, and this. You said it, but I don't think people would grasp it. And it blew my mind and continues to. So you were going into the office at Anchorage at what, 6 a.m.? Yeah, I would, I would get there every morning at 5.30. 
So I would wake up at like 4.45. Yeah, we were in Soho and Manhattan to start my day in finance and I trade high yield corporate bonds. Um, and it, I would yeah, do that until about 5 p.m. I would leave the office, jump on the L train and, and come to Lilia by hopefully 5.45. We started service every night at 5.30, but I was stopping at home just to see Biela and Maria. Um, and then we had twins in uh, 2016. And um, yeah, 2017, and uh, and then to the restaurant. And for the first year and a half we were open, I would stay here pretty late. And then you know, once it started running, I wouldn't have to stay here to close every night. And I, I would get home at a decent decent hour. And we lived so close to the restaurant that basically a, a 40 second commute uh, just made it all work. But but again, you, your day was. Basically, four forty-five till a.m. till eleven p.m. Give or take. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. 11, 11 p.m. to midnight. Um, and but it, you know, as crazy as it sounds, it was actually the healthiest I had ever been. Um, you know, growing up in finance from two thousand three to two thousand sixteen, I was going out to dinners every single night. Um, you know, before I was married, I was going out six nights a week, and um, and my life, I lived an unhealthy life. And when the restaurant opened, even though uh, the, the schedule sounds crazy, I actually, I was kind of the, the time schedule I was always on, even when I was just doing finance. But because um, I would go out every single night and I would get home at late hours and still go, go to work. But at this, you know, at this juncture, when the restaurants open, I was insanely healthy. I was, um, I was no longer drinking alcohol. Um, and I was eating actually way more healthy. I wasn't going out to dinner every single night having 2,000 calorie or more meals. I was I was eating raw vegetables as I was like walking the floor. So it was um it was actually a healthy part of my my life. I am um, everything about it. The physical and mental aspects. It made me better at my day job and sharper. Um, and definitely the entrepreneurial spirit that I felt at Lilia when we opened. And saw what we had accomplished pretty early on. It just made me better in my finance job. And uh, yeah, the the sketch sounds crazy, but it wasn't really anything different than I had been living um, previous. But uh, but it was just way more healthy. Well, well, it's it's to me it's mind boggling, and I never saw you anything other than a brilliantly happy. Um, at Lilia, and for me, someone who loves his downtime and unwinding, it's 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 shocking that someone could pull that off so effectively and so well uh, as you did. So, so Sean, one story that that I tell secondhand because it gives me it just gave me goosebumps thinking about it. Would you mind sharing the story? Two things. One how you brought a very efficient focus on to trying to figure out and uh, reviews that could happen for Lilia and, and the tact you took to get everyone on board for that. And then secondarily, could you describe, or secondary, I should say, could you describe the day that the New York Times review came out for Lilia? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So 
I would say, um, you know, from the time I got involved with the restaurants, I, I obviously wasn't in it ever. I, I loved being in restaurants and I, I didn't know how they really worked. And I was just always a guest. And when I really had this feeling in my, my, my heart that Mickey and I should be partners. And I knew exactly why she didn't want to be my partners because I had never done this before. I didn't have a track record and it was a really big decision for her at her in her life. And I was not oblivious to that. So what I did was I just used these relationships that I had built over the past 13 years of going out to dinner every night. And for the first time, I, I tried to monetize them and I would do it in a way where I just said, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about opening a restaurant with somebody and I need to know how it works because if I have to, if I want to make her say yes to me, she's going to have to feel confident that I can, I can operate and, um, and be, and, and be good at it. And so I was able to learn from a lot on how to do it. And when I was asking a lot of questions, um, a lot of answers were, well, this is the way it's always done. And I'm just always love that response because I think once that response, you could really unlock a lot of opportunities. So one of the things that came up was, you know, get it preparing for reviews. And Missy and I never really opened the restaurant to get reviewed, but we also were realistic knowing that we were going to get reviewed because for a year and a half or maybe even more for basically three years, Missy was not in the restaurant and um, people really wanted to see and think, you know, see what had happened to her in the past three years of being away from a restaurant. So we knew we were going to get reviewed. And, um, I, you know, I just started coming up with these ideas of how we were going to get put ourselves in a position to be, you know, give us a little edge. Because what I was hearing was, you didn't know when these people were going to come, they were just going to show up. And I was also hearing that if, if you didn't, know it was them and they felt like you didn't know it was them the reviewers it would you know have this already feeling negative feeling going into the meal and so that was a big thing for me so i decided that we were gonna pick um a number so i said anybody who spots these reviewers i'll give you uh two hundred dollars in cash and the first person who spots the reviewer come to me grab me on the floor you got it. So knowing that that person walks in our door and getting them immediately was like the first part of the battle. And in order to get to them, we were going to put up these big fat head uh, blowups of their faces in our locker room. So every day that uh, our team members coming into the locker room, go up these steps and see these big fat heads of all of the uh, food reviewers. And then underneath the fat heads, you had these biographies of you know, did they have children? Do they have any allergies? What they liked, what they didn't like. And we tried to do as much information digging as possible on them just to give us a little bit of an edge. So when they came in and sure enough, um, about, I think about three and a half weeks into Lilia being open, uh, one night I got a tag from, uh, a server named Carolina, probably the, like the quietest server that we had at that time and like shy almost. But like really thorough and good. She never made a mistake. She like ran to me like, like white as a ghost. And she's like, I see Pete Wells. And I was like, really? She goes, Pete, Pete Wells is here. And I looked at the door and sure enough, that was Pete Wells. And I was like, 
you got it. And we were able to like quickly get a table together. And uh, I once he sat down and it was all taken care of, I went out to the ATM and got $200 and uh, gave it to Caroline immediately. And then uh, we got for the next couple of weeks, he would come every, you know, two, time, two times more. We were able to spot him each time. And it was the best 600 bucks I ever spent. And um, uh, we were able to get, you know, I, I totally... The night before the review was coming out, Missy got fact-checked from the New York Times. She called me up and said, you know, tomorrow it's going to hit at 11.30 a.m. On, on the site. And um, I was like, okay, cool. I got to work the next morning at 5.30 a.m. And I have been an avid reader of the New York Times review since I was like, you know, 2003, since I moved to New York City and really got into food. So every Tuesday at 11.30, I, I would read it. And um, for some reason, I thought that this time it was going to come out at 5.30 a.m. So I started uh, went at work. I had like six screens up in front of me. And I didn't tell anybody uh, that we were going to be reviewed by the New York Times. And it was going to come out that day. I think the market is open the whole day. And I'm just refreshing from 5.30 until 11.30, <laughs> basically, like the New York Times website. And nothing's coming out, obviously. But then at 11.32, it's still not on the website. And I guess they were trying to track down Missy for one final fact check. And what she did was she didn't want to be above ground uh, for for the review to come out. And we still lived in the West Village. So she got on the L train right around the time it's supposed to come out. So the New York Times is calling her to try and do one last fact check. And she was not able to respond. So it was actually late being sent out on the New York Times website, but it was sent out through Bloomberg. And I started getting all of these calls about, oh my God, you got three stars. And I was like, no, 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 it's not up yet. And then sure enough, boom, it hit and it was three star review. And honestly, like I you know Missy and I the night before, uh, I knew she was nervous. Um, and I was not by that time, I, was, I wasn't going to bed. So I literally just went right to work. And then finally, the review did come out. And I started getting rang by all these people, that, my colleagues. And they're like, holy shit, you got three stars. And I just went off this train floor. I, could, I couldn't believe it. And I called Missy up. And she had just gotten off the L train. And she was like, How, what is it? And I go, we got three stars. She just like. She was like, get out of here. And we started like literally like crying because we knew how that just changed everything. And um, I went back on the floor and all the whole whole floor was like standing out. And my boss just said, you know what, get out of here. Let's go to the, get out of here. Let's go and celebrate. So, um, which is an amazing thing to say to me because it was day I was supposed to be trading bonds. And I remember just like running home to Maria, who was not at home at the time. I left some uh, roses on our table and then took the train over to Lilia. And the whole staff was there, um, the people that weren't even working. And it was well before they were supposed to be in for their shift. They just wanted to be here. And then all this like stuff started piling in from their industry, like champagne bottles from 11 Madison Park, like magnums signed by the by the staff and um, all, like all these amazing gifts. And I realized at that moment, like this is actually bigger than I thought. <laughs> and I, I didn't even, I didn't know this was going to happen. Um, 
And then the staff was like, all right, well, what are you, Sean, you, you obviously have a speech. I was like, holy crap, I don't. <laughs> like, and I had it in my, my pocket. I was like, I do have a one-star speech because I was going to have to rally the troops if we got a one-star speech. And I have a two-star speech, but I didn't have a three-star speech. And I just, like, ripped both the one and two-star speech up, and I just said that, you know, it's just an amazing thing that we just accomplished and everybody's life changed. That's a part of this. Even if you're not going to be in the industry, there's really nobody in the world right now today that could say they they were a part of something that got a three-star view about in your times. And, and you're going to always be able to say that. And it's a great thing. And this is that impacted. And that was And up until that point, it was like, the stone pony in the early seventies where like this guy Bruce Springsteen would go and li- every single week there would be more people going, check it out. And it's just the buzz kept on building. Um, and then one weekend he went to Harvard in 73 and uh, somebody wrote a, a review about, I saw the future of rock and roll and the same as Bruce Springsteen. And Pete Wells wrote this review about Missy Robbins cooking pasta again. And, um, and it literally became, you know, sold out shows at the, at the Meadowlands eight nights a week. And um, it's amazing what it did. And, and we were on a good path, but then it just like really took us to that next level where every single night was just a, 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 a madhouse. Well, I, I love that all roads lead back to Springsteen. That's amazing. No, I'm, very, I'm, ve- I'm very happy that you got the boss in there because uh, I would expect <laughs> nothing less. But it's it's just you know it, just like this me having to sort of dr- drag this story out of you. It, it it goes part and parcel with who you are and why I'm just so always impressed by you. And I think that people at levels that are somewhat shocking come to you. Because of the fact that you are, and you described it so well, you couldn't have told a better story than the than the sports story, uh, and it resonates with me because I remember being young and playing sports uh, and with very diverse backgrounds that were at higher levels, but I don't remember having the the mindset that I was there to help the team. I was very Warner focused. And this pandemic has helped change me dramatically. And um, the thing I've realized, though, is along the road, every friendship that I've picked up and everyone that I look up to has the mindset that you have, which is how can I how can I help? How can I make those around me better? And it's something that's seemingly so obvious that by helping others, you help yourself. But something that is somewhat antithetical to the upbringing that that not from my parents who were you know great even though there were some issues, it was just sort of an Upper East Side very um, cutthroat zero sum game mentality that wasn't about helping others it was, or at least my experience of it was very much what can I do to better myself and you know it's just it's always. I, I've, I've never met anyone where I can start a story with them that ends up with just a, a factual statement. And I'm not, it's not, it's not even, it's not a humble brag. It's nothing but a factual statement like, oh, I, well, 
yeah, I had, uh, I learned this for, I figured this out because I had dinner with Maverick Carter and wait, you had dinner with Maverick Carter? Oh, and LeBron was there. Oh, right. Of course, Sean Feeney had dinner with Maverick and LeBron because why wouldn't he? Because they're people who can actually, everyone can learn from you and the way you lead, lead your life. And, you know, that sort of brings me into right now because you are, and there are a lot of people out there, but maybe very few to your level. You made every right move, every right move. Lilia, three-star review. Missy, another smash success. Red Hook Tavern, the coolest new thing in New York City. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits. And you've done, mm. I mean, you've done everything right. And then all of a sudden, you're Leon Spinks, COVID's Mike Tyson, and you just got oh, knocked yeah. the fuck out. And yeah, I remember seeing you during those days, and there was a a different look than I've seen, which is understandable in your eyes. But the thing that you did was immediately acknowledge that there are so many people out there that you work with that are all of a sudden in a much scarier position than you might be, even though you're you and Missy are the face of it they're the real ones at risk and you immediately sprung to action to help others. And, yeah. you know, I, it just, it was just, it, it was so instantaneous that you can tell that it was, that has now been grafted in your DNA that you have feeling responsibility for others. And it, as much as you can, if you could describe, you know, what those initial weeks and up to today have been like, what you have felt, what you've, what reservoir you've tapped to allow you to get through it and still be a great business partner, friend, parent, husband, because very few people have been hit the way that you have by this and have done it as grace dealt with it as gracefully as you have. I'm, I'm glad on the outside, it looks like it's graceful. It's definitely, um, it, it it doesn't feel like that all the time. It's it, it, it's like everything else that everybody's dealing with right now. It's a tremendous roller coaster, um, and the highs are not anywhere close to uh, what the lows at times do. Like they're bottomless. But I think uh, there was no really playbook to when this all went down, and I never could have foreseen it really just coming the way it did. And I think. Um, trying the the month leading up to that March 15th date, which was the last night we were open with the restaurants. Um, you kind of had a feeling uh, it was, you, you had enough information that stuff was going to happen and you didn't know how it was going to go down. You tried to have contingency plans in place. Um, I don't really think we believed we were going to have to shut completely down until really the last 48 hours um, of that weekend in March. And I just remember that Sunday night, Missy and I made a call. That we were just going to have to shut everything down and telling the staff, Lilia, and then walking over to Missy to tell them that there is no doubt it was the saddest moment of my life. And, um, and it wasn't because I was scared about our company and business. It was that I was really worried for the well-being of our teams. And I always had this like, responsibility of a leader when we did have these businesses open to make sure that we always kept 
this feeling that when you walked into the doors of our four walls, you felt safe. And when you were in our presence, uh, you were comfortable and protected. And so that when you left, you were happier and fulfilled. And, you know, as a restaurant, I think a lot of people would feel like, yeah, well, of course, you're going to treat every guest like that. Um, but for us, it was, no, 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 we're, that's how we treat our, our people. And the reason why I was so sad that night when I left Missy to go back home was because I just knew that I, uh, I wasn't sure if we could do it. I didn't know what that was going to mean for them, uh, not just their physical safety, but their um, financial security. I knew it was just going to be really scary because a lot of the people that work with us are paycheck to paycheck. And that's not a negative thing especially when you're working at a really um, a healthy restaurant because the, the living is actually very, very great. But when you shut it down, um, it could create a lot of problems. And I was really worried about that. So I took that night really to just be sad. And, I, you know, it's amazing what our children can feel. Um, and I was just sitting on the couch watching uh, TV and, and Viola was in bed and she came out and I, the lights were off and she just like sat next to me and like put her arm around me. And it was amazing because she knew I was really sad. And I was like, listen, we're it's all going to be okay. Um, and I just woke up that next morning and I came to Lilia and called Missy up. I said, come on over here. I think I, I want to talk to you about something. And that entire day, we just came up with a plan on how we thought we could take care of our people, that 176 people that worked for us um, and with us in a way that was outside the box. And um, that's kind of how we always try to do things to try and take care of everyone and make sure that they know we're investing them. So we immediately paid everybody for what they made that previous week, which was obviously not heroic. That was what we would always do. Um, we keep everybody on healthcare for at least April, and now we're going into July, and we've paid everybody's healthcare that that got our healthcare through us. Um, we knew that we wanted to pay everybody's paid time off, which if you were with us for a certain period of time, uh, you either got one week or two, and then everyone gets six paid time off for for their you know while they're with us, and we were going to pay that as well. So that was something that I thought. Um, if we could tell them that today, that we were going to take care of that today, that would give some, um, that would ease their anxiety and stress. Um, and then we thought we could maybe go out to our community of followers and guests and ask for their support of our team. And we started a GoFundMe page. And after that, all these restaurants started doing that too, which is an amazing thing. And we were able to raise a lot of money. And that was able to get people like a week to a week and a half to pay to on top of the other stuff that we were doing. And then I thought to give hope and excitement to look forward to something, um, we could say that once we did reopen our businesses, the people that did come back to work with us and stay with us uh, through the year, we would have them participate in our profits. And um, we thought that that would be a great plan. So the first part of just easing their initial stress and anxiety, uh, and then potentially bridging the gap, because at that time, there was no $600 federal um, supplement. 
unemployment. There was just the state level. And it wasn't enough. Basically, everybody's income by half. And so we thought that the Grove House Fund potentially bridge that gap a little bit. Since then, they've now been able to get the federal and state and be very protected during the time we've been at, we've been closed. And then just look forward to something and potentially participate in profits. And, and, uh, you know, we were kind of making it up. It wasn't like a, you know, we were falling. We were just making it up and figuring out what could we possibly do. And, um, that was really for the first week to two weeks were closed. I just wanted to make sure that that was our priority. And once we got everybody settled, uh, it was then just to have that conversation with Missy. Say, look, let's just, you know, lock in. Don't worry about it. We're in a position right now with both businesses that uh, no money is going out. And we got money in the bank. And let's just be safe and think about our, our health. And um, don't worry about opening these doors back up anytime soon. And when she felt, you know, good about that, I then just went into my zone of remembering back in 2008 when financial crisis hit. And I was about 26, 27 years old, um, about to get married to Maria. I remember in that moment in 2008 when I just was so paralyzed and I wasn't, I didn't have uh, all the resources at that time. I wasn't um, extremely you know, I, I, I couldn't take advantage of a lot of the opportunities that were being presented because it wasn't on my mind. I was more paralyzed. I wanted to, I needed a job because I wanted to get married and start a family. And I'll never forget that feeling of um, being scared. And luckily, over the next few years, I was able to see a lot of the people that were not paralyzed or scared and take advantage of that moment and see what, what they were able to accomplished and, and do. And I never thought I was going to get that opportunity again to, um, you know, witness a just destruction, destruction. And, um, and I was like, you know what? I got it again. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So essentially every day I just wake up and as crazy as it's been, I just tried really hard to keep on pushing ahead and figuring out ways to, you know, just stop, find some light in this very, very dark time. Uh, and it's, it's definitely a dark time for the industry, but it's an industry that uh, was on a course uh, in a lot of ways of destruction. And this just kind of sped up that process. And, um, but there's a lot of amazing opportunities in the industry going forward and the future is very bright. So that's kind of my mentality since we've been closed. That is such a perfect summation of um, the best type of attitude to have and something that, that is just to me so exactly Sean Feeney. And I, even knowing you, I still am amazed to hear that ability to rationally say i've been through something that paralyzed me okay i did it that way it wasn't great i'm going to do it differently this way and to be optimistic in the midst of this i mean that is it's so crazy to hear but it's really the only way forward i mean it doesn't pay to be a pessimist um but it's hard to be an optimist when literally i can't imagine 
someone making more right moves and then getting punched the way that you did and the way that Missy did. Yeah, we, we've definitely made, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes even in this time too. It's not, it's hard to do, you know, you're not going to do everything the right way, but, um, but you just try to do the best you can. And I just have always loved this, this, uh, every day is a good day motto. None are easy, but you got the chance to, if you wake up, you got a chance to, to make it a, a good day. And, um, you know, it's, it's been hard. We, we've, we've, everybody's dealing with the pandemic, economic destruction, social injustice, um, and tension. And it's, you know, being locked in your house for, for months. It's, it's created some incredible obstacles and challenges for everybody in every industry, no matter what you do. Um, and we've, you know, I've, I've definitely witnessed myself through my life and career failures. And, um, and sometimes you just got to hit bottom to, to, to really go and make something of it. And this is one of those times. And this is the one time where I would say I didn't have anything to do with the failure. Um, but, and, and maybe it's not because, because of that, it, ha- it has led me just to put my head down and just work, work, work. But, Anytime you, you get down there, it's, there's only one way up, really. And, and that's, that's what I feel now. And, um, and I do think that there's some, there's only, there's so many amazing things that are going to come of this time, uh, for every industry. And, um, but I also think for, for communities and neighborhoods and in the world too, uh, just that, that feeling of, wanting to experience things, wanting to um, be together and uh, be part of a community, be part of something that um, is bigger than yourself. The sum is bigger than the, uh, the, the parts. I think, I think those are going to be some incredible outcomes of, of this period we're living in. And, uh, and everybody should try to figure out how they can take advantage of that. Well, Sean, I, I, I usually ask at the at the end if someone has any final parting words. Um, and you basically just gave a ton of great advice for anyone who's out there who feels like their world's blown up. I mean, the, the, again, the ethos uh, behind this podcast was really trying to be there and hopefully have someone who's listening who's in a tough place, um, you know, hear that. A, they're not alone, and B, hear how very successful people have been able to deal with things. And you have given a masterclass on on how to learn from past situations and then how to have the mindset to go through. And, and um, you know, you've, you've talked around it, but the truth is that there's a willingness to work harder than the next guy. And also willingness to care more than the next guy. And those two things make up who you are and really are a guiding light um, for anyone and everyone who meets you. And I am I am so thankful that you had the time to talk with us today. And I don't one last thing I do want to ask is are there any GoFundMe pages um or any other um uh, social programs out there that you can think out that you want to just sort of shout out for people to take a look at and maybe be able to donate to? 
Oh yeah, two years ago with a great organization, nonprofit that I'm on the board of. It's called the Food Education Fund, and we uh, we capitalize and we support um, uh, New York's only four-year uh, high school culinary uh, program in Hell's Kitchen, and uh, it's pretty. It's an amazing. Uh, it's changed my life to be a part of it, and I'm so fortunate that I am. 400 students at this high school focused on um, culinary and hospitality industry. And these 98% of the students are living in poverty and um, uh, just are incredible. We have 11 of them working at Lily and Missy until we shut down. But when we open up, they'll be back with us. And, uh, and these kids are just amazing. And it's called the Food Education Fund. Um, and since this time that they've been out of school, um, their families are at risk. We're making grocery bags curated by Missy, and we're selling them to people. And we're making them really easy uh, to, to get, pre-order, prepay, pick up. And uh, what we decided to do was that for everyone that we've sold, we will now start giving to families of students at the Food Education Fund. Um, besides all of the great stuff that they're getting from Food Education Fund as well. So that would be one that I'm really passionate about, Food Education Fund. And um, and I'm excited for the future of, of where that's going to go because now we've had so much success with the one school in Manhattan. We're going to start supporting uh, a culinary program at Team in the Navy Yard starting this fall with another 200 students that go to school for culinary um program at, at the Navy Yard. So Food Education Fund means a lot to me. That is uh, an amazing place to sort of wrap up. And, and I, I, I've, we could go on for hours and hours and hours about all the things you've done and all the people whose lives you've touched. But I think it's pretty clear that, that for you, creating home is really about creating a situation where you are able to help others. And um, you know, extend that the incredible family that you have outward and that relationships and and humanity are, are what feed your soul. And um, we're very much the same as that. However, you've been doing it for years and I'm starting to realize more and more just how important other people's happiness and health are to my own. And and, and again, just finally want to put out there that, uh, you know, we are both two very lucky individuals. I think we married almost a carbon copy of the same a uh, woman who allows both of us to to really strive and succeed and get to be who we are. So I want to quickly give a shout out to your wife, Maria, and my wife, Christina. Um, and this pandemic has helped me realize how lucky I am. And I know you have always known from, I think you guys met in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we met in high yeah. school. And I, yeah, I knew that the second I walked into her room that she was born. And, you know, we yeah, were fortunate. To be on this ride with her, and uh, she is she's my rock, and Rose Bells for sure, and she's the unsung hero of everything, and has made it all kind of happen. So she she is the reason. Well, well, we are very lucky, and you know, we are the, the home. The home you've created is really is housing a lot of people right now, and will continue to do so. And uh, I feel very fortunate to be one of those. So, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I really look forward to 
seeing you at the reopening of Lilia and probably well before that. Well, thanks for your friendship, brother. And uh, I will see you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Creating Home. While we all face this new and uncertain world, I find it inspirational and reassuring to learn of our guests' journeys from around the country, and I hope you do too. Join us next week as we continue to learn what goes into creating home.